the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing and engineering today's program. Today we're going to talk with Jonathan Alexander, Director of Public Policy at Liberty Council Action on the use and funding of fetal tissue experimentation. We're also going to talk with Os Guinness, his latest book, Last Call for Liberty, How America's Genius for Freedom Has Become Its Greatest Threat. We'll also talk with Father Dwight Longenecker. He's the author of The Mystery of the Magi, The Quest to Identify the Three Wise Men. Really fascinating look using historical, archaeological, and uh, astronomical references, as well, obviously, as uh, scripture. And we'll share a conversation I had yesterday with Gary Hemingway with our uh, listeners in the latter part of the program on Gospel Christmas that opens at the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall uh, tomorrow night and runs through Sunday uh, evening as well. Well, the special funeral train carrying former President George Herbert Walker Bush rather arrived in College Station, Texas today. The last leg of his journey before America's 41st president is laid to rest. Following a funeral at St. Martin's Episcopal Church in Houston, his casket draped with the American flag was loaded aboard a Union Pacific locomotive 4141 train car in Spring, Texas. Former President George W. Bush and his family were among those in attendance at the ceremony, after which they boarded the train. During the funeral, the elder Bush, who died Friday at uh, age 94, was remembered for his decency, boundless kindness and consideration of others by a long, uh, longtime friend and former Secretary of State James Baker. Bush is to be interred on the grounds of uh, George Herbert Walker Presidential Library and Museum on the Texas A&M University campus near his wife, Barbara and Robin, their daughter who died of leukemia at the age of three back in 1953. The train was scheduled to slow down through a number of towns along the roughly 70 mile trip that included Magnolia, where hundreds of people gathered uh, to see 4141 go by. Crowd members waved flags, cheered as the train arrived and so on. They have several other funeral trains in the nation's history. That includes the one that carried Dwight Eisenhower's body from the National Cathedral in Washington to his Kansas hometown in Abilene several decades ago, according to the Associated Press. Upon the train's arrival in College Station, members of the Bush family and guests observed uh, as the uh, casket, uh, casket rather was placed into the hearse, had a private ceremony where they... Um, Uh, made their final uh, goodbyes. Well, the Navy honored former Navy aviator and 41st President George H.W. Bush with the largest ever 21 aircraft missing man formation as part of the funeral service in Texas. 30 F.A. 18 Hornets and Super Hornets departed Naval Air Station Oceana, Virginia today ahead of the uh, internment ceremony at the George Bush Presidential Library and Museum in College Town. A Naval Aviation official said that the uh, missing man formation of this size is unprecedented and reflects Bush's legacy as a naval aviator and ongoing relationship with the Navy's carrier strike group community. So former President George Herbert Walker Bush laid to rest today.
In other news, the Saudi crown prince was complicit in killing the activist Jamal Khashoggi, a bipartisan group of senators said in a resolution. And Justice Department prosecutors have begun interviewing witnesses in an investigation of Clinton-linked Washington insider Tony Podesta and former Obama White House counsel Greg Craig, a probe referred by special counsel Robert Mueller. Democratic governor-elect Tony Evers of Wisconsin threatened to explore all legal options after state Republicans passed legislation to limit his power. And General Motors CEO Mary Barra defended plans to slash as many as 15,000 jobs and close five North American plants. A spokeswoman for U.S. Senator Kamala Harris said the Democrat was unaware that a top aide was at the center of a $400,000 harassment and retaliation settlement. Harris has accepted the aide's resignation. And on this day in 1923, the presidential address is broadcast on radio for the first time as President Coolidge speaks to a joint session of Congress. On this day in 1907, the worst mining disaster in U.S. history occurs as 362 men and boys die in a coal mine explosion in Monagra, West Virginia. And in 1865, on this day, the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which abolished slavery, thank you, Jesus, is ratified as Georgia became the 27th state to endorse it. I am the... Uh, Great, great granddaughter of slaves, and um, I'm grateful for this date in 1865 or four. Well, Congress on Thursday approved a short-term spending bill to avoid a partial government shutdown, punting the thorny debate over border wall funding and other issues until later in the month. They're really good at punting. The stopgap spending bill, which uh, was swiftly approved by the Senate after passage early Thursday afternoon in the House, would fund the government through the 21st of December. Congress has faced a Friday deadline to reach a budget agreement, but lawmakers decided to effectively delay that fight uh, with this week's services for the late President George H.W. Bush. President Trump is expected to sign the measure, but the disagreements are far from resolved. Seven of the government spending bills remain unfinished. The most controversial is Homeland Security appropriations, which would include border wall funding. Apart from the uh, complications of needing bipartisan support in the Senate, to overcome a filibuster. House Republicans right now do not have the votes to pass a bill with or without the $5 billion in it for the wall funding sought by the president. On one hand, conservatives want full wall funding. On the other, Democrats remain opposed. And House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi, who aims to reclaim the speakership next month, faces the risk of backlash from her caucus if she accepts a deal containing what uh, her rank and file consider uh, too much wall money. Well, amid the disagreement, the president is set to meet with Pelosi and Senate Democrat leader Chuck Schumer at the White House next week. There was an effort to condemn Hamas and its work of terrorism. The U.N. failed, however, to adopt the U.S. resolution. The United Nations General Assembly failed today to adopt a U.S. resolution that condemned terrorist acts by Hamas and other Palestinian militant groups, a blow for the U.S. uh, to push uh, and to curb anti-Israeli bias at the body. Well, the U.S. resolution would have condemned uh, Hamas for repeatedly firing rockets into Israel and for inciting violence, thereby putting civilians at risk. It would also have demanded that Hamas and other militant actors, including Palestinian Islamic Jihad, cease all provocative and violent actions and condemn ha- Hamas efforts to construct tunnels to infiltrate Israel and launch rockets into civilian areas. But after a procedural move by Kuwait and 
Bolivia. The body adopted a rule that meant the U.S. resolution needed a two-thirds majority to be adopted. The resolution picked up a plurality of 87 votes and uh, in support and 57 against, with 33 abstentions, but it was not enough to meet the two-thirds resolution. So that is now dead. And more than 1,000 absentee ballots likely cast by Democratic voters, although we don't know, in North Carolina's 9th Congressional District, may have been destroyed amid voter harvesting allegations in favor of Republican Mark Harris in a closely contested race. You're looking at several thousand, possibly 2,000 absentee requests from this most recent election. About 40 percent of those, it appears, at this point may uh, not have been returned, says the Wake County District Attorney Lauren Freeman. Well, Freeman confirmed Monday that her office has been investigating potential voter irregularities in uh, Bladen County since... um, Early this year, the investigation began in 2016 and has now incorporated the 2018 primary and midterm election allegations. There has been an open investigation throughout this period. Representative Jerry Connolly, a Democrat from Virginia, called on the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee to hold an emergency hearing to look into allegations that some voters uh, that they're um, or rather from some voters that their absentee ballots were collected illegally and not counted. The real election fraud is playing out right before us in North North Carolina's 9th Congressional District, Connolly said in a statement. Harris, his opponents, holds an unofficial 900-vote lead over his Democratic rival. Both candidates uh, did not uh, respond to requests for comment uh, earlier today, but that's where things stand at this moment. Well, coming up, we're going to talk with um, uh, Jonathan Alexander, who is the Director of Public Policy at the Liberty Council, Um, action. We're going to talk about the use of fetal tissue for experimentation and uh, also the use of taxpayer dollars to underwrite the funding of that. So we'll get into that with Jonathan Alexander. And then later in this hour, we'll talk with Os Guinness, his very sobering but hopeful book, Last Call for Liberty, How America's Genius for Freedom Has Become Its Greatest Threat. Uh, Again, I found it very sobering, uh, his assessment of where we are, how far we have fallen, and how we might get up again Uh, Very, very helpful. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency. Well, Liberty Council Action joined 74 legislators here in the United States urging the end of the use of body parts of aborted babies for government research by the Health and Human Services. The National Institutes of Health, they've estimated that it's spending $103 million taxpayer dollars to purchase and experiment on human fetal tissue just in fiscal year 2018, and that's in line with previous year spending as well. The University of California at San Francisco used aborted babies' intestines in a year-long, uh, year-long experiment to create two types of humanized mice in a contract that's up for renewal. In fact, it was up for renewal just a day or two ago. Well, here to talk with us about all of that, there were some decisions that needed to be made this week. Jonathan Alexander is the Director of Public Policy at Liberty Council Action. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thank you for having me. This is such a barbaric act that it's it's difficult to talk about and to consider that we are underwriting this practice with our taxpayer dollars but that there's a possibility this could come to an end. Help us to understand where things stand today and the decision that needed to be made, I think, yesterday about whether or not the, pro, uh, the project that I just mentioned will continue to be funded. 
Square, of course, and because the government uh, was closed, as they remembered uh, the 41st president, uh, there wasn't an exact decision made yesterday. However, there was a letter sent on Monday uh, that did say that this uh, practice, as it was done at the University of California, uh, would no longer be funded. Um, So there was a letter given where the director has 90 days to close out its operations. Um, There's no a definitive decision yet, and of course, you know, we'll have to see what happens at the end of these 90 days, uh, but at least the letter that you mentioned with the 74 legislatures uh, has seemed to have an impact where HHS is pulling this funding from the University of California. Now, it's encouraging that they're pulling the funding from that particular uh, program. What about, in general, the use of public money for the use of, of fetal tissue? Does this cover that practice altogether, or is this just a, a decision that impacts that single program? Yeah, as of right now, it's just that one program. As you mentioned, there are $103 million uh, that were allocated for fiscal year 18. Uh, that's the same amount that has generally been allocated, about $100 million. Only 13 or about $9 million of this uh, pool of money has gone to uh, that university in California. So there's still about 90,000, uh, sorry, $90 million out there uh, of funds that, as you mentioned, taxpayers are underwriting uh, for these research centers to use the baby parts of aborted babies in order to do fetal tissue research. So there's still a huge pool of money out there uh, to continue this barbaric act. Mm-hmm. I mentioned the University of California at San Francisco using aborted babies' intestines in this program, this this, uh, test, to create humanized mice, a sort of chimera, if you will. Uh, Talk a little bit about that experiment, because some of the aborted uh, fetuses, the the unborn children, uh, could have lived to term had they not been terminated through abortion by their their mothers. Right. Certain images, you you can talk about them, but you can't really even you know, wrap our minds around what's actually happening. Uh, I think in 2015, uh, when the videos came out of you know individuals at Planned Parenthood bartering for the sale of aborted uh, baby body parts, we sort of got a picture, but that's just pulling back the curtain of the abortion facility and, and knowing what happens in an abortion facility. Now we're hearing that these you know men and women in lab coats are elbow deep in baby intestines, attaching them to mice. Uh, in order to come up with, uh, you know, treatment for diseases. There are folks advocating that, well, these, you know, they're treating AIDS or or putting an end to Parkinson's disease. Um, Regardless of what the medical justification is, these are aborted babies being ripped apart limb from limb, and now we're knowing that these remains are being attached uh, to to animals um, in, in these these facilities. It's hard. We say it over and over again, but until we're actually looking at these images and understanding what is actually going on in these research labs, uh, it's hard to really get a grip for just how grotesque this practice actually is. Hmm. What you're describing is a form of state-sanctioned cannibalism. You use the body parts of the unborn in order that those of us who are mature can benefit uh, from what we think we might be able to, uh, to produce. One of the important things you said was, regardless of the outcome hoped for by researchers, this is still a barbaric act. The exploitation of unborn children should not be acceptable. What has this uh, practice yielded, um, however, in the form of benefits? Is this uh, the single uh, option available to deal with uh, some of the challenges that the medical community face? And has there been the kind of success that we're being led to believe makes this necessary? 
Right, absolutely not. I think one of the things we can ask for, you know, what happens to babies that are that are miscarriage, babies that that die uh, without an elective abortion, they die by natural causes. Um, you know, certainly, if you know, if, if a mother is willing, those babies can be used in research. It, it's still a stretch. It's, it's still not something that um, you know all, all individuals are, are comfortable with with uh, with that being uh, used. But at least it's it's better than an elective abortion leading to this. Uh, you started to mention earlier the ages of some of these babies that are being aborted, between 18 to 24 weeks, which means about half of these babies could survive outside of the womb. Uh, half of these babies, or all of these babies, really, if they were brought to term, would survive, but about half of these babies at the, this point that they're being aborted would survive outside of the womb. Uh, but nevertheless, we're killing them, basically incentivizing these abortionists to kill them in order to continue this profit stream. Uh, there are other ways we can ethically obtain fetal tissue. Uh, miscarriages are still still birth uh, babies. Uh, you know, we can use the tissue from, from them, but not, not aborted babies, especially those uh, that could live outside of the womb at this age. Mm-hmm. The letter that I made reference to um, states, exploiting even one unborn child in this way is repulsive and should stop, regardless of the outcome hoped for by researchers. However, not only is research with abortion fetal tissue unethical and wrong, it is ineffective. Fetal tissue has not produced a single clinical treatment, despite being used in clinical research since the 1920s. So again, the the point being made, it's unethical regardless of the outcome, but the outcome doesn't even justify its use uh, which has been a practice for many decades, uh, apparently. This this is just uh, repulsive, and it's hard to imagine that this is considered acceptable by anyone uh, who's responsible for managing U.S. taxpayer dollars. I think you're absolutely right. It, you know, they, the other side will throw the number that we've been using body parts like this for decades. Uh, well, where is the outcome, as you mentioned? Uh, since the 1920s, some say the 1930s, uh, we've been using this for research. Uh, where is the outcome? Um, and even before we get to the outcome, where is the dignity mm-hmm. we're affording to human life that is ending in the womb? Uh, those that have been aborted or even those that have died through miscarriages, those babies deserve to have proper burials, to be respected and treated as human beings, certainly not uh, for their intense, intestines to be attached to animals, certainly not for their baby parts to be sold on the market, and especially not for taxpayers to have blood on our hands as we are allowing this to go on. Uh, thankfully, the legislators, our representative officials have seen this, um, have called attention to it, and we're looking for a hopeful resolution where, where this will end, uh, hopefully in these 90 days, but even sooner. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me just say how grateful I am for Liberty Council Action uh, for helping to orchestrate this uh, this protest, if you will. And I am so grateful for the work that you do, and uh, thank you for taking the time to talk with us here today. Well, thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it very much. Once again, Jonathan Alexander is the Director of Public Policy at Liberty Council Action, talking about the use of fetal tissue for experimentation and having that being underwritten by U.S. taxpayer dollars. Uh, unethical, grotesque, immoral, all of those words certainly do apply. Up next, we're going to talk with Os Guinness, his latest book, Last Call for Liberty, How America's Genius for Freedom Has Become Its Greatest Threat, a fascinating overview of how the mighty have fallen and where we can go from here. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
Good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest writes that the hour is critical. The American Republic is suffering its gravest crisis since the Civil War. Conflicts, hostility and incivility now threaten to tear the country apart. Competing visions have led to a dangerous moment of cultural self-destruction. This is no longer politics as usual, but an era of political warfare where our enemies are not foreign adversaries, but our fellow citizens. Yet the roots of this crisis are deeper than many realize. We face a fundamental crisis of freedom as America's genius for freedom has become her Achilles heel. I'm referring, of course, to Os Guinness, whose latest book is titled Last Call for Liberty, How America's Genius for Freedom Has Become Its Greatest Threat. Os Guinness is a doctor of philosophy from Oxford. He was born in China, educated in England. He is the author of more than 30 books, including The Global Public Square, A Free People's Suicide, Renaissance, and others. He has been visiting fellow at Brookings Institute and a senior fellow at the East-West Institute, a frequent speaker and prominent social critic. He has addressed audiences worldwide. He's a passionate advocate for freedom of religion and conscience for people of all faiths and none. He has the, uh, 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 was rather the lead drafter for both the Williamsburg Charter and the Global Charter of Conscience. He lives with his wife, Jenny, in Washington, D.C., in that area. And we are delighted to have him with us today to talk about his latest book, Last Call for Freedom, How America's Genius for Freedom, or I should say Last Call for Liberty, How America's Genius for freedom has become its greatest threat. Os Guinness, it is an honor to have you with us today. Thank you. Well, it's a real pleasure to be back, Georgine. This book is um, sobering, but at the same time, very hopeful. But it reminds us that we have an obligation at this point in history that future generations may not have if we don't make the right decisions moving forward. No, that's right. I mean, everyone's agreed there's a deep crisis in America. The question is, What's the deepest cause of the division? You know, some people say another episode of left against right or the coastals in New York and California against the heartlanders in the Midwest and so on. And others say the deepest division is between the populist nationalists and the globalists like George Soros. And I think people miss the real problem. It's between those who see the American Republic and above all freedom through the lens of the American Revolution, 1776, Mm -hmm. which was decisively biblical, and those who see it actually, often without realizing it, through 1789, the French Enlightenment and the French Revolution, which has a very different view of freedom. When do you think Americans uh, lost sight of liberty as it's understood in 1776? Many people might point to to a date closer to the present, but this has been a very gradual process. When would you suggest that Americans uh, lost sight of true liberty? Well, the roots go back to Europe, but I think it came in in a big way here in the 1960s. So you have an Abraham Lincoln or a Martin Luther King in the 60s who addressed the problems in the light of what Martin Luther King called the promissory note of the Declaration. He believed in the Declaration. But if you look at the 60s, the shift from King to Stokely Carmichael, anti-Vietnam, the rise of feminism, and so on, somewhere around 1968, there was a fateful lurch left. And there was a call for what was called the long march through the institutions. In other words, people in the colleges and universities, the press and media, and, and the world of entertainment, saw America in the light of a cultural Marxism. 
It was chronically racist, sexist, hegemonic, and all these nasty things. And after over the last 50 years, this is 50 years since 68, those ideas have dominated in those areas. And that's where much of the trouble comes from. Where did that originate? Was it Marxism finally having its, its influence in the minds of particularly young people in colleges and universities across the country? Or was, this, was the root of this um, planted or, or at least begun much sooner? Well, Marx called for a revolution in the streets, the proletariat, the haves against the have-nots, or the other way around. And he was wrong. There's never been a proletarian revolution. In the 1920s, Gramsci, an Italian Marxist, sat in jail for more than 20 years and thought things through. He said, Marx is wrong. What you need was actually a revolution among the elites, the gatekeepers, to gain what he called cultural hegemony. And that was picked up by people like Herbert Marcuse in New York in the 60s, and then people more recently like Michel Foucault, the Apostle of Power. And you can see that's what slowly gained the field. So today, political correctness, tribal politics, postmodernism, all these things, including, above all, the sexual revolution, they all go back to ideas that flowed from 1789, not 1776. Mm -hmm. So we're at a watershed moment. I call it the Rubicon moment. Remember when Caesar crossed the Rubicon coming down from Gaul, he declared war on the Republic. And from then onwards, as Cicero said, Rome was a Republic in name only, the first use of the notion of rhino. Um, hmm. And you, you can see we're at a moment like that. Yes. And many Americans don't realize how deep and different the views of freedom are that come from the French Revolution. The subtitle of your book is How America's Genius for Freedom Has Become Its Greatest Threat. Perhaps we should begin by just talking about what freedom is, how it's defined here. Um, and uh, you define it as the absence of coercion. Explain, first of all, your definition of freedom and how um, it differs in these two uh, views of freedom that we're grappling with today. Well, freedom, very simply, is the ability to express and exercise your will despite interference, resistance, and coercion. But, of course, that's when the differences begin. So Lord Acton says, freedom is the power to do what you ought, not the permission to do what you like. Yeah, much American freedom is really a libertarianism. Mm -hmm. It's doing what you like. Or again, one of the great definitions of freedom, Isaiah Berlin, I remember him at Oxford when I was a student. He would say there's a negative freedom and a positive freedom. You have to have both. Negative freedom is freedom from. No one's free if they're under control of anyone or anything outside themselves, whether it's drugs or alcohol or pornography or a bully or whatever. You have to start with negative freedom, freedom from. But that's only half of freedom, only the beginning. Real freedom is positive freedom, too. In other words, freedom for, freedom to be. Now, that requires truth, character, and a way of life. But most American freedom today is libertarian. It's negative freedom only. And freedom like that simply isn't sustainable. It runs out in the sands of license and permissiveness. Let's talk about pluralism and the role that it plays, if it's helpful, uh, and in what ways it can be harmful. Well, we've got to say what we mean by some of these terms. Yes. Pluralism, to me, is just a social fact. A lot of people 
with a lot of differences, languages, cultures, religions, and so on. So we can't change that. In a modern world, it said everyone is now everywhere. Through the media, travel, migration, there's an explosion of pluralism. Now, that's one thing. Relativism is another. Relativism is a philosophical conclusion. There's no truth. Everything's relative. We disagree strongly with that. Then you have multiculturalism, which bred tribal politics, identity politics. That's a political policy, and I personally would disagree with that too. So pluralism is a fact. Relativism is dangerous. Multiculturalism is misguided. We've got to be clear what we're talking about, but certainly the multiculturalism based on relativism is wreaking havoc with American culture and politics and freedom. Now, I mentioned at the top of our conversation that this book is very sobering, but it's also uh, hopeful. Let me just invite you to comment perhaps on what we'll talk about more fully at the end of our conversation. Are you hopeful that we can turn the ship of state, if you will, around to return to the 1776 values that was an expression of the uh, American genius for freedom? Well, my book's a checklist of 10 questions for citizens to ask and see which side they come out on some of these issues. But since the heart of constitutionalism is the Jewish notion of covenant, which comes from the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, you can see there that covenants, when they fail and they break down, they can be restored. So the question is, will there be a Lincoln-like leader in our time who will address the problems in the light of what Lincoln called the better angels of the American nature? and appealing to the Declaration and the founding documents. If we don't have that, the slide towards 1789 will continue unabated. So I'm hopeful in the sense I call, I spoke recently in the Senate, and I said, which of you leaders here will be that Lincoln-like voice in this country? So it's not impossible. For me, the question is, if there was such a leader, and I pray daily that there will be, would there be sufficient resonance in the country right across the board? Mm-hmm. Or have we gone too far? That's my question. Uh, it begs the question, is it a matter of education because public schools don't necessarily teach a complementary version of 1776 uh, version of freedom as opposed to um, its opposite, the, the French Revolution? Are, are you... Uh, are you hopeful that people who are not being taught in the public institutions will somehow rise to understand that history so that if a leader were to arise, they would understand what's being uh, promoted? So, George, you're exactly right. The public schools don't just not teach it. They teach something else. And you can see the world of education, different ideas which are antithetical to the American Revolution. And so I call for leadership, but there's no question that if you have leadership, One of the key areas is the restoration of civic education and also a sense of history. And Mm -hmm. public schools are appalling in teaching history. Now, if you look back, the original American motto, a pluribus unum, the more diverse the country gets with all the differences, the more you have to have the unum, the uniting first principles. And if they collapse, the country will be balkanized and only a matter of diversity. And that's where we're going now. So, again, I hope there will be a leader who sees not only the crisis and a solution, but calls for a restoration of civic education. The public schools are absolutely critical at the moment, negatively. Yeah. 
Yeah, we're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation again, talking with uh, Os Guinness. Last call for liberty, how America's genius for freedom has become its greatest threat. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Os Guinness when he asked the question of uh, us in America, whether or not we have the um, can we remain a guiding light for liberty? And the, the book poses a series of questions we need to ask ourselves to determine the course uh, we will take and the course uh, for which we will be answerable to future generations. You write that Americans are asleep uh, when it comes to their own liberty. And you, the series of questions that you pose in the book really are a wake-up call to help us recognize, um, first of all, whether or not we are asleep and how to to rouse ourselves to the appropriate way of thinking first, and then ultimately to action. Can you share a few of the questions that you pose in the book that we should consider uh, if we want to um, take some role in changing the course of our republic? Oh, I'm happy to. Yeah, the, the first one is, do we realize where freedom came from? Now, I raise that because many Americans simply don't realize. That's true. They think, for instance, that uh, maybe democracy came from Athens, but the framers were very cheery about Athens, that Athenian democracy lasted no more than 50 years. In fact, American freedom comes from the book of Exodus, and it was the Reformation that rediscovered that, and it was through the impact of the Reformation, particularly in New England, the notions of freedom, uh, the voluntary consent of the government, separation of powers, ordered liberty, all sorts of things. They come from the book of Exodus, which is really the master story of Western freedom. And so that's an important one. Do we know where freedom came from? Another one is, what do we mean by freedom? We, we discussed that mm-hmm. before the break. You can see many people have a view of freedom that simply, well, it won't last. It's unsustainable. Um, other free, uh, questions, have Americans faced up to the paradox of freedom? The greatest enemy of freedom is freedom. And you've got to understand how free societies in history don't last. And there are ways in which they always undermine themselves. And we've got to understand that to see how we can resist and counter that. So I've got uh, 10 questions there, um, right down to do we really assess how the current ideas flowing through America are affecting freedom? And I mentioned some of them, such as political correctness and the sexual revolution and so on. But I would challenge Americans. We need a a national town hall debate or a national discussion to really see where do Americans think we are today? Mm -hmm. And above all, what do they think of freedom? Well, it's such a wise question to point out the paradox of freedom, because there are others outside of the country who understand all too well how to exploit the freedom that gives them an advantage that Americans perhaps don't appreciate because we don't recognize that um, that paradox. I think about China and the exploitation of, of uh, economic freedom. I think about terrorists uh, who take advantage of um, our unwillingness to defend our own borders or to take seriously the threats that they and others um, pose to our our freedom here and abroad. We have to think about that paradox rather than just assume that freedom in every form is uh, is beneficial to us to our sons and daughters, and quite frankly, to the uh, watching world. No, that's right. Complacency is one of the greatest enemies of freedom, especially in times of power and prosperity. 
And you know, the old notion when the Soviet Union collapsed of freedom and democracy are sweeping the world. Well, that's simply not true. And if we look at our great enemies like Iran or, say, rivals like China, we can see that authoritarianism is on the rise, not free-loving societies. So we, we, we should be very vigilant today. And you can see, always with a great country like America, the real problem is not the enemies outside. It's actually the enemies of freedom inside. And that's the real challenge, far more deadly than the Iranians or the Chinese. One of the questions you ask is, where do you ground your faith in human freedom? And that's an important question um, as well. Uh, explain a, a bit what that question is designed to get at as we're thinking through um, ordered liberty and, and freedom moving forward in this country. Well, again, a lot of people don't think about that freedom, freedom, freedom. They think it's here and they'll stay here forever. But the amazing thing is that only in the Bible, the Hebrew and Christian scriptures, you have a solid grounds of freedom. Now, if you look in the Old Testament, the countries that were around, the empires that were around in that time, Egypt, Babylon, Mesopotamia, the Greeks, and so on, none of them had any views of freedom. The Greeks had some view, but behind everything, fate. Even the gods couldn't change fate. Now, people think, of course, we're modern. Surely we all believe in freedom. The stunning fact is you cannot ground freedom in atheism or secularism. And all the great secularist thinkers, Spinoza, Marx, Freud, right down to the new atheists like Sam Harris and so on, freedom is a fiction. We're actually determined chemically, biologically, historically, economically, or whatever. You cannot find a grounding for freedom in atheism. That's stunning because the unique grounds are in the Bible. And in, in, of all in the book of Genesis, that we're made in the image of God, and we have a responsibility and a freedom. So Christians should be the champions and the guardians of freedom today. And this is a day in which we should stand firm on that, realizing how unique and distinctive the Christian view is, the biblical view is. Instead, far too many of us are in the retreat. Another brilliant question you ask is, are you vigilant about the institutions crucial to freedom, a republic or a democracy? Um, we often hear the United States of America being referred to as a democracy rather than a republic. Um, and we don't perhaps see ourselves as guardians of the institutions of this uh, republic, uh, perhaps because we have granted that authority to others. And while we're disappointed uh, by their handling of that uh, that power, we don't see ourselves perhaps playing much of a role um, in helping to preserve and understand these institutions crucial to our freedom. You know, even if you take democracy seriously, it's clear the framers were very wary of it, mm -hmm. and they chose they chose not the direct democracy of the Greeks, but the representative democracy of of Britain. Well, in the 19th century, they knew that if you expand the franchise and more and more people can vote, you better expand education so that more and more people can vote wisely through education. But if you just look at this one aspect today, education has expanded and become incredibly mediocre and missing out key things like history and civic education. So you have a citizens who aren't really wise enough to elect people well. And then you have, say, things like the referenda in California, which are really direct democracy. Or you have things like Facebook's likes, the thumbs up and so on. You know, it's all a matter of feelings and so on. 
Well, all of that tends to undermine. Then you take the social media and the way it shapes our thinking and feeling. Democracy itself, quite apart from the looking at the republic, democracy is in profound trouble in this country and getting itself a bad name. Hmm. You uh, write about the 2016 U.S. election that changed the way America is viewed in terms of our capacity to hold and value liberty. Um, This election uh, certainly stands out in that regard. How much damage has been done from your perspective? Is it uh, rightly applied uh, or is it misunderstood, uh, the damage that's been done? And what do you anticipate will help to restore um, our good name, if you will? Well, it's it, it's it deepened the name. It's the character of the country at the moment, I think. Yes. No, once you understand this clash between 1776 and 1789, President Trump, you know, people in Washington are obsessed, pro and con, the poor man. I think he was a wrecking ball that stopped America in its tracks. Eight more years from Hillary of what President Obama had done would have set America firmly on the road to 1789. So Trump, in effect, stopped America in its tracks and gives a four-year, maybe an eight-year, chance to rethink where are we, who are we, where do we want to go? And you can see, you know, in Britain, when you have a party out of power, it's called the loyal opposition. Here you had the resistance, the word taken from World War II, those who were fighting the Nazis underground. And you saw how people like President Obama immediately did everything through his organization to undermine the present administration. Then you look at things like the Kavanaugh hearings, and you can see it's worse still, the the denial of process, the denial of the presumption of innocence. In other words, things are spiraling down on both sides. So we need that Lincoln-like leader. So the president, he talks about make America great again, but he never asks what made America great in the first Mm. place. And it wasn't the military, and it wasn't the economy. It was ideas. And we need a Lincoln-like leader who will lead the country back to understand where it came from, where it's gone wrong, and how things can be put right again. Lincoln called for a new birth of freedom. We need a new, new birth of freedom. But it could be done. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Guinness, it is always a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much. Now, my privilege to come. Thanks, Georgine. Again, the book is titled Last Call for Liberty, How America's Genius for Freedom Has Become Its Greatest Threat. The book is published by InterVarsity Press and is certainly a worthy read or a great gift. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up next. We'll be back to talk with Father Dwight Longenecker, author of The Mystery of the Magi, The Quest to Identify the Three Wise Men. Or were they three? We'll talk about that in a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Well, we are full on into the Christmas season. We're singing Christmas carols and enjoying fellowship with one another. Among the songs that are familiar, We Three Kings of Orient are. Well, is that song, are those lyrics actually reflective of what the scriptures tell us and what we know, or at least think we know, about the Magi who came at the time of the birth of the Savior. Well, my next guest, um, well, he challenges what we think we know and urges us to look at what the scriptures actually say and what history can tell us. Everything you know or think you know about the famous Christmas story of the Magi is 
well, wrong. In his astonishing book, Mystery of the Magi, The Quest to Identify the Three Wise Men, uh, Dwight Longenecker, priest, author, and award-winning blogger, challenges the legend that three kings guided by a magical star joined adoring shepherds at the birthplace of Jesus. Now, let me just say that he's not suggesting that the scriptures are not inaccurate, but our understanding of them in the context in which all of this took place should be better understood. He pieces together evidence from the biblical studies, history, archaeology, and astronomy, and he uncovers where the wise men came from, why they came, while providing a new and fascinating view of the time and place in which Jesus Christ chose to enter the world. It really is a fascinating book. Well, Dwight Longenecker is a Catholic priest, award-winning blogger, freelance writer, a graduate of Oxford and Bob Jones University. He's written 16 books on different aspects of religion. He's a highly sought-after speaker for scholarly and men's conference events and often leads parish missions, retreats, and diocesan events. He and his wife have four children. He serves as pastor of Our Lady of the Rosary Church in Greenville, South Carolina, and joins us to talk about the Magi we think we know, but probably don't fully understand. Hey, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm glad to be with you. You know, I'm going to be singing on Friday at an event, singing a Christmas song, and the song that I chose for that event is We Three Kings, and now I'm rethinking the whole, <laughs> the whole thing because you have challenged us to consider, first of all, what the scriptures actually say, what they don't say, and to look at other sources to help us better understand who these wise men, if you will, uh, who they were. What sparked this uh, interest for you in clarifying what, uh, what actually happened? Well, you know, I was asked to write an article about the origin of the wise men. And if you look into that, the usual um, research will say they were, they were uh, um, from a, a cast of um, sort of wizards and, and shamans from, from ancient Persia, uh, if they existed at all. But an awful lot of the Bible scholars uh, don't think the whole thing is a fairy tale. So I, I sort of went back and said, well, I'm going to look at this in more detail. Uh, and what got me started was the prophecies in Isaiah, which say that um, the kings from Sheba and uh, Edom and Selah will come to the Messiah. So I said, where was Edom and Selah and Sheba? And it's in the Arabian Peninsula. So I thought, okay, let's see who was there during Jesus, uh, the, at the time of Jesus' birth. And that opened up a whole new area of discovery, which was really fascinating. Mm. Well, it is fascinating because, uh, again, I think we think we know because that's how uh, the story has been handed down from generation to generation, despite the fact that the scriptures say some very specific things and leave some of the things we've embraced out. In fact, you make the point that some of what we have attached to that part of the story isn't biblical at all. It, it, its origins come from other sources altogether. Yes, um, the the Magi story, more than any other story in the in the Bible, and and uh, has been embroidered and added to uh, with lots of um, elaboration over over two thousand years of of, of storytelling, uh, and an awful lot of the uh, what we accept as the typical story that we all would tell at Christmas and see in the Christmas play of three wise men who came from Africa, Asia, and India, who followed a a magical star step-by-step on a long desert journey. None of that's actually in the Bible. Uh, And while I sort of take those legends apart, I do actually show that Matthew's simple telling of the tale is remarkably accurate to the to the um, politics and the geography and and the um, context that we know at the time of Jesus' birth. So while I do take apart all the legends, and I explain where the legends came from, um, they they originated, began to originate in in the third century uh, in Syria and in Armenia, 
uh, and in Persia, where the church was very influenced by Gnosticism uh, and by Zoroastrianism. And these influences came in, and extra-biblical writings began to circulate around about these uh, mystical wise men, uh, which were fantastical fairy tales. Uh, but these... Um, uh, extra writings began to influence the tradition, which then came into um, uh, what we understand uh, in the European tradition, and it continued to develop right through the Middle Ages and beyond. Mm. Now, were the Magi initially seeking the Messiah? Uh, were they responding to Messianic prophecies, or were they on a diplomatic mission uh, to the court of Herod the Great? Or both, well, perhaps? We, we... Yeah, we we can't really separate church and state um, back then. <laughs> the two were the two were really um, hand in hand. I I propose that they were actually on a on a diplomatic mission from the court of Aratus the Fourth in in Nab- neighboring Nabatea to the court of Herod, and I explain why. But I also explain how these wise men would have been. Um, attuned to the Hebrew, the Jewish scriptures. They would have known the Old Testament. They would have known Isaiah. Uh, and the anticipation of a Messiah figure was actually, um, it's, it's amazing, it was widespread not just amongst the Jews, but all over the ancient world. Um, there are tracings of um, uh, uh, prophecies of a Messiah figure in Egypt, in Persia, in Greece, and in Roman literature. Uh, and so, uh, yes, they were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for a Messiah figure, but they were also on diplomatic mission. Uh, and so it's not really either or. Now, you say Nebatia. Help us in the modern world to understand where that might be and, and who these people were. Well, the Nebatian civilization is basically, uh, they dominated the Arabian Peninsula. So when you think of Saudi Arabia and Jordan, that's the Nebatians. Uh, and we don't know much about them because they didn't leave written records like the Romans and the Greeks and, and, and the Egyptians and, and the rest of the ancient civilizations. Uh, and basically, you think of them as a, a more, instead of a nation, as a, confeder- a trade confederation. Um, different tribes and different influences came together, and they dominated the trade routes from Yemen uh, across the Arabian Peninsula and, and uh, Palestine to the port of Gaza and then running north and south from Egypt up to Syria, Armenia, and Persia. And they had their trade caravans with camels, um, bringing goods from uh, luxury goods from uh, India and China uh, across to the rest of the Roman Empire, and then going back east, taking um, gauze, which comes from Gaza, uh, Damask, comes from Damascus, and other hmm. riches from, from the Roman Empire back across. They were traders. But th- this is the interesting thing as well. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh was their cash crop. The, the, mines, the gold mines of, South, of Arabia were world famous for the purest and best gold in the world. Also, incense and myrrh is, grow, is taken from the bushes that only grow in the Arabian Peninsula and Northeast Africa, the territory they controlled. So therefore, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh also indicates uh, where they came from. Hmm, hmm. Now, we refer to the anomaly in the heavens as a star. Is that what they saw, or would, it, uh, astronomically speaking, is there a better explanation for what they viewed in the heavens that indicated something significant was happening on Earth? Yeah, yes. When you read Matthew carefully, he never says that they followed a magical star step by step across the desert journey. This came in in the Gnostic writings in the third century, um, in various different uh, myths and, and sort of fairy tales that, that people wrote about the Magi. Um, they say, Matthew says uh, that the wise men saw his star rising, 
And the there are several really good books about this written by astronomers and, and, and people who know a lot more about it than I do. Uh, and But basically they say there was a planet, uh, not, they, they didn't distinguish between planets and stars back then, there was a planet that was rising uh, in the constellation associated with the Jews, uh, it was the planet Jupiter, which is the royal planet, uh, and as that star was rising, being astrologers, they concluded that there was a new king that was going to be born to the Jewish nation. Um, that's the short version. It's actually much more complicated than that. Uh, uh, and some of the, I think the best opinion says that it was a combination of uh, reading uh, astrological signs, but also there may very well have been uh, a, a startling comet, um, which also was another uh, sign in the heavens, uh, which helped to direct them. So uh, my opinion is that it's actually a combination of the two. Again, just uh, absolutely fascinating. Now, the song that I was going to sing tomorrow, uh, the opening line is, We Three Kings. We have (laughs) decided that there were three of them. Where does that um, numeric reference come from, and what's more likely to have been the case? Well, first of all, the the kings, uh, they're first uh, seen as being kings by uh, the first church fathers, Tertullian and Origen, writing in around I believe their dates are around the 2nd century. And they took that because of the prophecies in Isaiah, which said that the kings will come from Edom and Selah. And therefore, they concluded that these men were kings. Uh, In fact, I don't believe they were kings, but they certainly had a royal connection in as much as I believe that they were diplomats coming from the court of uh, Aratus and coming to another king. So there was a royal connection, even though um, they were coming from a king, even though they may not have been kings themselves. And the number three, uh, very early on, um, the writers and the preachers and, and, and the theologians in the church began to say there must have been three of them because of the gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. However, the early traditions differ. Uh, in some of the um, legends and stories about the wise men, there are four. In, in I think it's a Coptic manuscript, there are 12. Um, so, uh, and another uh, ancient uh, Christian Arthur's two. So, you know, the number is not stated in Matthew's Gospel. So I guess I'll be singing Silent Night tomorrow. No, the thing is, you can still, and people say, because I also point out they probably didn't ride camels. Um, and, and people say, can I still have camels in my crib set? Of course. And you can sing We Three Kings of Orientar and all the rest of it. Um, but it's also good to know the historical foundation of, and, and of these legends. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. Again, we're talking about a fascinating book that gives us a perspective on what happened at the time of uh, the birth of Christ. My guest is Father Dwight Longenecker. His book is titled The Mystery of the Magi, The Quest to Identify the Three Wise Men or Group of Guys from Somewhere. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing a fascinating conversation with Father Dwight Longenecker. He's the author of The Mystery of the Magi, The Quest to Identify the Three Wise Men, or as you know, more possibly from places other than where we thought they came from. Now, um, let me ask you um, why the story of the Magi is important to the narrative of Jesus' birth. Now, we know that if it's in Scripture, it's meaningful. So help us better understand why that's why mention is made of this visitation. And I think the, the other question is, when did it actually happen? There's all kinds of uh, ideas as to when they would have arrived. You know, traditionally, they're, on the, they're in the nativity scene with Jesus, Mary, and the infant. Tell us a little bit more about that. 
Yeah, there are a couple of questions there. First of all, again, uh, if we look simply at Matthew's Gospel, uh, Matthew says that they came to the house where the young child was, and they found the young child with Mary, his mother. And the word young child is is best translated toddler. So um, they're not in a stable at this point, they're in a house. Uh, and the, and Jesus is the, is, a, is a toddler. So and, and then Herod, remember, said, "Tell us when the star appeared." And then he asks for all of the the babies two years old and younger to be killed. Therefore, we put those facts together and say, perhaps the the wise men came to pay their homage to the Christ child um, when Jesus was um, young, younger than two years old. Um, and so uh, most uh, everyone just reading the text would make that conclusion. Um, so, yeah, it's it's nice to have them there with the shepherds on Christmas Eve, but they, they came a couple of years later um, and, and paid their homage to, to the Christ child. Uh, the other question that you asked, um, I forget what it was. Oh, just <laughs> generally, <laughs> generally why this uh, is important to the narrative of uh, oh, the birth yeah, of yeah. Jesus. I mean, obviously, if it's mentioned, it happened, but we, we want to better understand why was that included in the story that that's so familiar to many of us. Right. We, well, we, that's when we look at Matthew's audience and we look at Matthew's um, provenance. In other words, where was he writing from? Matthew is the first of the Gospels to be written, I believe, although scholars debate that. Um, and But anyway, he is writing from to a Jewish audience, uh, probably in Judea, around the area of Jerusalem and Bethlehem and so forth. So he's writing from this, in the area to the same people who were there. Now, <clears throat> we know from the early church that there was a big controversy, and that amongst the Jewish Christians uh, in, in the early days, and that is, are the Gentiles allowed to, 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 to receive the gospel? The Jews said that, that, they're, that the Gentiles are dogs, and so um, there was a, a strong contingent, a strong party who said, no, Jesus is here, he's the Savior of the Jews, he's not for the Gentiles. And of course, we know from the book of the Acts of the Apostles um, that Peter and, and the Apostles uh, Peter had a dream, and, and someone came to see him, and they debated back and forth. Uh, and so this was a big debate uh, in uh, the, just at the time when Matthew was writing his gospel. Therefore, we know which side Matthew was on. Matthew was on the side that the gospel was actually for all people, and that's one of the key reasons why he um, tells us the, the Magi story. He says, look, these, these pagans, these men uh, who were not Jews, uh, came and were drawn by the Lord uh, to worship uh, his son, Jesus, uh, the Lamb of God, uh, at his birth. And right from the very beginning, therefore, the Lord had planned uh, for them to come. He quotes some of the uh, um, <clears throat> prophecies from Isaiah, uh, which also show that um, all nations will come, and, and the house of the Lord, the, the temple will be a house of prayer for all nations, and that all the nations will come to worship. So uh, that's the reason why Matthew includes it. He wants to make the point that the gospel is for the non-Jews. Ah, ah. Well, let's let's talk about historical evidence that would prove the existence of this group of of uh, travelers. Uh, one could argue it's in the scriptures; therefore, it it happened, and it must be true. But we'd be accused of circular reasoning. Is there any extra biblical um, uh, historical evidence that uh, that supports the story in in the scriptures. Well, uh, the, the, we have not yet found any inscriptions uh, in uh, Petra. By the way, the famous city of Petra was the capital of the Nabataean um, civilization. Uh, we have not found any inscriptions uh, there which say this was the home of the three wise men who went to see Jesus, baby Jesus. <laughs> but what I did in my book was I, I gathered together um, evidence about. Uh, 
the, the Magi and their history right back through five centuries uh, in Persia and around the rest of the ancient world. I gathered together the history of the Nabataeans and explained uh, what their motivations were and what, what their um, life was like. I looked at the politics of the time when Jesus was born uh, and drew it all together to build up um, bit by bit with lots of uh, little pieces of evidence. One of the most intriguing ones uh, is uh, were the Nabataean, um, the, the religious people, the, the wise men in Nabataea, were they stargazers? Uh, and in the 1930s, in a temple uh, in Jordan, in Nabataean territory, from the time of Christ, from the first century, uh, they discovered uh, a stone zodiac, uh, which is proof, therefore, that the Nabataeans were stargazers. Furthermore, um, we very recently, an archaeoastronomer named uh, Juan Antonio Belmonte, who works in Spain, uh, determined that the hilltop temples of the Nabataeans were actually built uh, according to the alignment of the stars and the alignment of the planets. So we know that they were a, a stargazing um, peoples. We know that, that was part of their religion, uh, and we know they had deep interest in the, the doings of the Hebrew people because they were they were cousins uh, in a way. The tribes of Arabia were cousins to the Jews, uh, and so all of these pieces to get to, uh, of evidence together. Um, it's kind of like if we're looking for the wise men, who are the best, uh, you know, suspects, mm-hmm. and, and and they're the ones who come up. Oh, again, just fascinating. One of the things you do in the process of helping to help us to better understand who the Magi may have been, um, you also refute arguments against the the Christmas story. Those who would suggest that yes, it's a it's a warm and fuzzy story, but. It really is not true, and particularly the Magi, they were not a part of that story. And you uh, really uh, focus on those who, whose exegesis would dismiss elements of Scripture. Yes, I, I was—I I, I mean, I did have an agenda. I wasn't making things up, but I did want to find out uh, the historical basis for the Magi story and was— not very patient, really, with the uh, academics and the scholars who simply say, oh, yes, it's a fairy tale. Everybody knows it's a fairy tale. In fact, somebody said to me, Father, why do you think after 2,000 years you've discovered the answer? And I said, well, part of the reason is that nobody else bothered to look it up because they thought it was a fairy tale. Uh, I mean, if if you think, for instance, um, Johnny Appleseed, let's say, uh, had no historical existence, was a fairy tale person, you would never bother to do any research to find him. Uh, and so I thought, well, let's have a look anyway. And what I found was uh, just really exciting. Well, it, it, uh, this is a great book, and I thoroughly enjoy the the notion of um, better understanding that element of Scripture and th- also sort of putting a check on what I've added to what the Scripture actually says. You know, I think we need yes. to be uh, careful about what it says as opposed to what our familiar um, legends um, add to it. Um, I think your listeners can learn a great deal about the Christmas story and um, just the importance of all of those details. Did the Magi come to worship, um, do you think? uh, Obviously, there's no evidence to support this, but did they come to worship the Messiah? Did they come out of curiosity? Was this just one culture acknowledging uh, the value of elements from another? What do you think their motive was in coming? I'd like to get to that in a minute, but first I would like to remind your listeners that this book is also um, an apologetics book. You see, a lot of non-believers will say to Christians, oh, you believe a lot of legends and fairy tales and make-believe stuff. And in fact, when it comes to the Magi story, 
they're right. <laughs> a lot of what we tell the story we tell at Christmas is made up of these extra things that are extra biblical, um, and therefore uh, it's our duty to pare those things away and look at the facts and look at the evidence and look at um, what really did happen. So that's it was partially an apologetics effort to, to put this together. Mm-hmm. Um, but to answer your question, I, I believe that the, the wise men were um, in their own culture. Uh, religious seekers. I think they were looking for the Messiah. I believe that they knew the, the prophecies of Isaiah, uh, and I, I put in my book why I believe they, mm-hmm. they knew the prophecies of Isaiah. They also knew and understood and had very ancient links um, with the Jewish religion. Uh, the Arabian tribes all claimed descent from Abraham like the Jews did, and there's very fascinating details about how their religion was similar to the Jews. Furthermore, they were the next-door neighbors to the Jews. They would have been um, very intrigued by the prophecies uh, of, the, of the coming king, king of Israel, the son of David, the Lamb of God, uh, the Messiah. So I think they were on a religious and spiritual search, uh, but it was also, uh, as it happened, uh, had, a, had a political dimension to yeah, it. Yeah, geopolitical interest. Mm-hmm. What do you think yeah. happened to these seekers once they discovered the Messiah, brought the gifts um, to him, what became of them? Do you think? Well, that's where I get into. <laughs> that's where I get into a lot of, I think, really fascinating speculation. Um, it, my speculation is that if Herod was was um, watching out for them because he was mad at them, he would also have told their boss, the king of Nabatea. Therefore, when it says they went back to their country by a different way, Matthew says they went back by a different way, I think they didn't go home at all to their home city. I think they went instead to Damascus, which was in the northern part of their territory, but at that time was controlled by the Romans, not controlled by the king of uh, the Nabataeans. Therefore, uh, they would have been in their own country, but they would have been safe under the, under the um, rule of the Romans uh, in the city of Damascus. Now, I think Damascus, because... You might remember where um, the Acts of the Apostles connects 30 or 40 years later after Jesus' death and resurrection. St. Paul goes to persecute the Christians who are already in Damascus. Um, very early on, Damascus is one of the centers of the church, and he says they're already there. And there are a few intriguing little hints in the research um, that the, Ma- the Magi were in Damascus, uh, and or there were wise men in Damascus, uh, and that there was a very early Christian community there. So I speculate about that, and I say, did um, St. Paul actually learn his theology uh, from this very early Christian community, which perhaps was founded by the, by the Magi? Um, is there evidence for that? Well, I didn't, I didn't dig much further. <laughs> I'll let somebody else do that. <laughs> but it's, a, it's an in, informed speculation that's uh, worth pondering. Thank you so much for joining us. I so appreciate the book, The Mystery of the Magi, The Quest to Identify the Three Wise Men. Father Longenecker, thanks for joining us, and Merry Christmas. And- Thanks for having me on the show. You have a great time. And you go ahead and sing three, uh, We Three Kings. <laughs> okay, I'll okay. do it. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, bye-bye. Uh, right. Father uh, Dwight and Longenecker, The Mystery of the Magi, The Quest to Identify the Three Wise Men. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to uh, share a conversation I had with Gary Hemingway. Gospel Christmas begins tomorrow. We'll give you all the important details in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. I was sad to uh, to learn that a crew member in a U.S. Marine Corps plane collision died after a rescue earlier today in five 
uh, remain missing. Uh, the crew member was rescued um, Well, it was today in the waters near Japan, near two Marine Corps aircraft. They collided during a training exercise. Uh, One of them has died, as I mentioned. Five remain missing. The announcement uh, comes with a frantic search for the other uh, members who remain uh, missing. Another Marine who was uh, rescued is listed in fair condition and might be able to provide some insight into what happened. Uh, The Marine said the F, um, I guess it's the F-A-18 fighter jet, And a KC-130 refueling aircraft collided, crashed during a training uh, session around 2 a.m. on Thursday. The plane took uh, took off from their base in um, Japan near Hiroshima. And the crash occurred about 200 miles off the shore, off the coast of Japan. As uh, as to what was taking place when the mishap occurred, uh, this is an under under investigation, according to Eric Flanagan, who is a major in the Marine Corps and speaking on the issue. There were two crew members in the F.A. 18 and five in the KC 130 at the time of the incident. The crash is the 21st non-combat military crash of this year, surpassing the 20 disasters in 2017 and only the latest in a recent series of accidents involving members of the military deployed to and near Japan. Well, last month, the U.S. Navy F.A. 18 Hornet from the aircraft carrier USS Ronald Reagan crashed into the sea southwest of Japan's southern island of Okinawa, though its uh, two pilots were rescued safely. And in mid-October, an MH-60 um, uh, Seahawk, also belonging to the Ronald Reagan, crashed off the Philippine Sea shortly after takeoff, causing non-fatal injuries to a dozen sailors there. More than 50,000 U.S. troops are based in Japan under the uh, Bilateral Security Pact, and uh, we've just lost one of them with five still missing. I mention it because I think it's important that we are aware um, that there are men and women standing by serving our country uh, when we're thinking about other things. I go to the mall, I buy something for Christmas, I pick up something for dinner, I'm having a great life. But there are people who are separated from their families who are uh, in places where they wear a uniform in order to serve the interests of the people of the United States. And while we may not agree with every deployment, we may not agree with every leader in the U.S. military, these are people who are motivated by a love of their country and service to their country. And we would do well to remember them, to pray for them, and to um, to mourn them when they are lost. I think the funeral um, over the last several days, I said should say funerals, plural, of former President um, Bush 41 is a reminder of the the tremendous sacrifices that men and women in uniform make. You know, George W., I should say George H.W. Bush nearly lost his life uh, serving in World War II and um, never lost that that drive to uh, serve uh, the country. Um, And in fact, uh, in much of his burial and, and his funeral service, there were references to that military service. Well, there are young men today, some of whom may aspire to politics. There may be a president of the United States stationed somewhere around the uh, around the world serving in the U.S. military. I um, have mentioned quite often that I have a nephew who serves in the Navy. He's only been in for a few years, but he will become the captain of a ship in just a matter of weeks. And it's a, a marvel to me, his the level of commitment and training and vigilance that's required. He has been stationed in the Middle East now for several years and I think about him, I worry about him all the time, and yet I'm um, confident in the training that he and others have had, and um, he believes he's called to the the mission that uh, his service uh, affords in the Navy, and so we just pray for him and trust that God is ordering his steps even there. So I 
would encourage you to remember other military families that you may know, some you may not know. Remember those who have lost loved ones as a consequence of recent events in the military and um, and others. Well, this is an awkward segue, but on Friday, as is typically our practice, we in fully intend to lighten up and we'll take a look at the lighter side of the news. I'm looking forward to that, and I hope you are as well. Um, uh, so we're going to do that on uh, on Friday. Uh, and then uh, in the following week, we'll return to some of our more serious uh, subjects. And I'm really looking forward to some of the interviews that we have uh, slated for the uh, coming days. But I also want to mention that we have a radiothon for World uh, World Concern. That's coming up on Tuesday. Now, we don't typically have radiothons on Tuesday. They tend to be later in the week. But this is our uh, opportunity to participate in the Global Gift Guide. And if you're looking to do a little Christmas shopping that makes a difference, not just to the people to whom the gifts are given, but in this case, to those who benefit by your generosity in the name of someone you care about, you can listen in uh, for our World Concerned Global Gift Guide Radiothon on Tuesday. You can also go to kpdq.com. There's a link to the Global Gift Guide, and you can take a look at some of the offerings that are there. You don't have to wait till Tuesday. But we do hope that you'll take the time to consider how to give uh, more meaningful gifts, particularly to those who, you know, it's really difficult to buy for. They have everything they need. They're able to buy what they want. And this is a way of honoring them in a very different way. School teachers, for example, I know a lot of families are trying to come up with things that they can give to the teacher from the kids uh, as they approach the holiday. And as you might recall, with the uh, Global Gift Guide, you'll receive a card that can be given to the person in whose name your gift has been given. And, for example, there are opportunities to support education in countries outside of our own where it's very difficult uh, for educators and for students to get the resources they need. And that can make a great gift for uh, the teacher or teachers in your life. So that's just one example. There's lots of uh, others. So check that out, the Global Gift Guide uh, the World Concern Radiothon on Tuesday or at kpdq.com. Look for the World Concern uh, banner at the top of the page. I want to thank James Blind for producing and engineering today's program and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at grice Show. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.